This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 49 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most annual podcast in the business. My name is James Myers, and I'm your host. On today's episode, we're continuing our annual tradition of looking at games that came out recently and discussing why designers should play those games. We have six designers from the group who have picked games from 2018, from the biggest hits to some less well-known games. Let's jump right into it with Daniel Solis. Howdy howdy, this is Daniel Solis for this year's recommendation. This year, I would like to recommend a game called Let's Make a Bus Route. This is designed by the designer who goes by the name Sashi, with illustrations by Takoko Takadai, and it is published by Sashi and Sashi. And so far as I know, this game is only published in Japan, but uh, it may be released in the United States um, by, a, by a publisher at some point. I hope so, because it's a very interesting and, and fun game for a designer to try. It is fun to play on its own merits, but because of this podcast's focus on talking about game design, I'd like to primarily focus on what a game designer can glean from uh, playing this game in particular. In Let's Make a Bus Route, each player is trying to create a bus route through a map of downtown Kyoto. Now, I've never been to Kyoto, so I cannot vouch for the accuracy of this map, but given its cartoony nature and relatively abstract grid, uh, I, I would imagine this is a very loose interpretation of the landmarks around the city. But they are all labeled, and given that the game comes from Japan, I'm assuming there is some level of accuracy here, and some nice Easter eggs if you know the area. At the beginning of each round of play, one card will be revealed from the deck. And over the course of the game, the entire deck will be used, with each card only appearing once. Each card has a color on it. Every player has their own personal tableau that says the the color of that card and also the shape of line that you may draw when that color of card is flipped over. So say, for example, a red card is flipped over. Everyone looks at their little player tableau and checks the little red section and sees that, uh, for example, in my case, I can draw two line segments in a straight line. Uh, whereas you must draw two line segments in an angle, uh, like a, like an elbow. And then in, in turn order, each player will draw their uh, respective line segments, continuing their bus route uh, that they've been drawing uh, throughout the game. Uh, in essence, this is most like the old mobile game Snake, where you are uh, drawing one continuous line that keeps getting longer and longer. And in both games, the loss condition is if the, that line ever intersects with itself. Uh, And that is the case in Let's Make a Bus Route as well. Uh, In in fact, it is quite humorously brutal in its description of what happens if your bus route intersects with itself. You are eliminated. You are fired. You'll never make a bus route in this town again, kid. It it is very funny uh, how emphatic it is about this being an undesirable outcome. So no matter how many points you've gotten throughout the game, if you intersect with yourself, you're done. So don't do that. But in the effort to avoid doing this, you uh, start contorting your bus route into all sorts of weird shapes, going, taking weird blind alleys that go into dead ends, and, uh, and you really, really uh, get some tension as the game proceeds. Now, this is only compounded by the fact uh, that this is, yes, a roll-and-write game, but the key thing that uh, separates this game from many others in the genre is that every player is sharing one central play space. They're all drawing on the same map of Kyoto. Now, because of this, it does bring in some of the downsides of having a turn-based game, primarily the fact that you have to wait for your turn to come up. Now, uh, I've seen some feedback on this game that, that says, like, oh, well... 
the whole advantage of a roll and write game is that everybody plays simultaneously. And yes, that, that is true. And that, that is certainly an appeal of that genre. But I think if you were to take this game and compare it to another turn-based game and, and kind of decouple it from the entire roll-and-write genre, I think there are still some merits to this that uh, are worth exploring for further development in, in the roll-and-write genre. In Let's Make a Bus Route, if you ever draw a line segment onto a part of the street that already has another player's line segment on it, you incur what is called traffic. And the more traffic you create and record onto your board, the worse the point penalties are. There's no rules in the game presently about uh, scaling that to the number of players, so it is much easier to get less traffic if you only have two players than if you're playing with a full player count. What I would like to see in a future edition is perhaps some scaling to the maps and perhaps to these mechanisms so that uh, traffic feels like a little bit more of an impact. But the only reason I bring any of that up is because I, I think that Let's Make a Bus Route just dips a toe, takes takes a step towards bringing in more player interaction into the roll-and-write genre that I think would be worthwhile for future designers to explore on their own. This is something that I, w- I would certainly like to explore my, myself. Uh, I've long thought that it would be kind of cool to have a worker placement game, for example, that is primarily driven by roll-and-write uh, mechanisms. Um, so we wouldn't need the uh, cumbersome nature of, uh, frankly, the, the expensive nature of a bunch of different components to represent different types of pieces or pawns, uh, when in fact you could just draw the type of worker that you're uh, that you want to place onto the worker placement space, for example. Um, whether that's just a, a square and a triangle or something more elaborate, that would be up to the theme of the game, obviously. But the core idea that you have all of the freedoms of a Roland Wright game with all the depth of a multiplayer Euro-style game, it really appeals to me personally. And I think there's there's a, a big design space available there that, that has not yet been fully explored. And one last little treat for all the game designers. Uh, now, y'all know I love set collection mechanisms. So there's one cool little set collection mechanism that I found in Let's Make a Bus Route that uh, I think may have existed before, but the way it's uh, represented in this game is pretty fun. Uh, So as you're drawing this bus route, you're connecting these uh, tourists, for example, and each time you you connect a tourist to this line, you uh, do a little hash mark on your personal player board to record that you've connected one tourist, then two tourists, then three tourists, then four tourists. Now, the next time you hit a tourist stop, an attraction, uh, say a temple, for example, uh, you'll record how many tourists you picked up prior to reaching that tourist stop, and then you'll get commensurate uh, points or bonuses. Now, the cool thing is that once you've hit four tourists, you cannot get any more. So basically, uh, if you do connect another tourist, it's almost a wasted scoring opportunity. So you really want to deviate your route going left or right or up or down to really hit your next tourist stop so that you don't waste the opportunity that, that you've had, which is the other big thing about this is that you don't score anything for those tourists unless you do reach a tourist stop. So those tourists are just going to be mad at you if you if you don't reach a temple. Effectively, this is just collecting resources and then turning them in for uh, a bonus of some kind. That's a very standard sort of uh, set collection mechanism when you view it in the most abstract sense. But uh, what I like about this theme in particular is how easy it is to communicate that. This is a fun way to communicate essentially that exact same exchange, but in a much more uh, lighthearted and thematic manner. Uh, I, I highly recommend taking 
uh, taking a look at this game, not just for the reasons that I mentioned previously, whether that's the interaction or these cool set collection mechanisms, but also just for the pure light fun of it. Uh, it, it is such a charming thing to say, hey, let's make a bus route. I, I quite enjoy it, and I really hope that you give it a shot too. Uh, it is hard to find in the United States right now. As far as I know, it's only published in Japan. But if you go to conventions with a re with a reasonably large library, you'll probably find a copy there. You should also check out any uh, video tutorials that you can find uh, on it. Uh, Netter's Plays has a very good overview of it that I would recommend checking out if you want to find out more about the gameplay. And now we're here with Ainsley Cobb. How are you doing, Ainsley? I'm doing well. I'm here to talk about Keyforge. Okay. If you've been living under a rock these past few weeks, uh, Keyforge is the uh, second newest card game by uh, Dr. Richard Garfield. Most of the uh, developmental work was done by Brad Andreas. It was released by Fantasy Flight. And it is the first unique deck game. And what that means is rather than a traditional CCG experience where you get packs and you build a deck out of that and then you play with those decks... Uh, Keyforge cuts out the middleman, so to speak, and a computer algorithm has built your deck for you, and you are the only person in the world with that deck. All right. It's a, certainly an interesting concept. Uh, yeah. So why do you think designers should play Keyforge? So Keyforge does a number of interesting things. So first of all, the the gimmick, the algorithm is really interesting. I think there's sort of an aversion to integrating technology into tabletop somewhat justified, sometimes unfounded. And I think this is a, an exa a positive example of like letting technology be a big part of the design process. So I think for a designer who doesn't have access to a warehouse and an advanced computing system, I think the, the key lessons are uh, Keyforge has a very interesting resource system, which is that it doesn't have a resource system. So unlike most CCGs and similar games, you don't have any kind of resource that you use to play your cards. Uh, instead, each deck has three factions of cards, and each turn you declare one of those factions, and you can only use cards from that faction that turn. Uh, and what that does is the only costs in that game are opportunity costs. You know that That's an interesting thing that a lot of games don't have, and I think opportunity cost is something that people don't think about in designs and balancing necessarily, so... Having something that's just opportunity costs can help you think about that. Another big reason that I think designers should play it is I think every designer should play at least one CCG type game. Even if that's not what you want to design, there's lots of things that CCGs do really well. And one thing they don't do well is uh, accessibility. They're really hard to get into generally. But for Keyforge, it's incredibly easy to get into. You need one deck that's about $10 and some way to proxy tokens, which if you're a designer should be pretty easy. And I think for that reason, like it's useful to get a sense of like, what are CCGs doing? What, what do they appeal to in players? Like what, how do they interact with themselves and with other games? Uh, it also, because it's so sort of stripped down and accessible, it's also a good example of like streamlining your game as much as possible. So Keyforge cuts out so many layers of difficulty into getting into the game, and it just simplifies that as much as possible. I think that's a good example to set. Yeah, as long as you can understand some keywords, you can play pretty easily. I am not a CCG player, but had a chance to play 
a game and a half or so the weekend it came out. Yeah. Um, was like, okay, once I understand what these half dozen keywords mean, I can jump right into it without having read the rules, without having done anything like that, as long as yeah. whoever's teaching and, me knows what's going on. Yeah, and the, the starter set actually has two starter decks that are the only like non-randomized decks, and those really aggressively spell out the keywords for you. Like on the cards that are actually different than the normal one. So that's another like way to get through that. Cause yeah, keywords are definitely a thing that CCGs deal with a lot more than traditional board games. Okay. So if you can talk for a little bit more about the idea of the opportunity cost. Um, cause I definitely think that's an interesting idea. Not enough games kind of force you to make that choice. Yeah. So the way sort of Keyforge works is there are seven factions. Each deck is three of them. And you can only use cards from one of those factions each turn. And what that forces you to do is think, uh, is you have to balance all these different things because I want to get as many cards out of my hand as possible because you draw back up to your hand size. But I also want to use the cards I have out. And so it creates a lot of tension because you can always do, you can almost always do something really cool on your turn but you can never do all the cool things that you want to do. So I think how you can apply this or this opportunity cost philosophy to your own designs is think about situations where you force people to not do everything they want to do. And typically how that's done is something like, oh, they're, you know, they, you have to spend resources to do this uh, and you only have so many resources. But I think uh, in a lot of ways, like limiting your players but letting them choose their limitations is a, a way to give them a lot of agency without giving them too much agency. And it also helps like preventing snowballing and things like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you can eliminate resources or the accumulation of resources, then you've also managed to strip down components and game costs and that kind of thing. Yeah. And Keyforge also has reverse resources almost because uh, in order to, to win, you have to forge three keys, and in order to forge a key, you need six amber. And there, most or a lot of cards just give you amber for free, so it has like a situational effect. But even if you're not getting the full use out of it, you get an amber, and that's that's an interesting balancing thing. Is everything has that opportunity cost, but some things essentially give you resources, but they're, but they're not resources that you have to expend to do anything other than the win condition. Okay. Definitely sounds like folks should check it out. Any last yeah. things you want to say about Keyfort? If you are uh, interested in testing it in the, the simplest possible way, there is a unofficial online client for it uh, called the Crucible Online. And uh, if you are in the area and you want to test it, Atomic Empire has great casual meetups and low-key tournaments and stuff like that. Well, thank you very much, Angeli. No problem. And next up, we have Graham Russell. How you doing, Graham? Pretty good. All right. So what game from 2018 do you think designers should play? I think they should play Decrypto. So Decrypto is a game in which uh, you play as teams, and each team has four secret words. And a member of each team, ha each round has the uh, a sequence of the numbers one through four with one missing in, in any order. And they need to give clues to those words to their own team to get them to guess what order you need them to, to know 
without giving the clues so well that the other team can start to figure out what your words are and intercept by getting by getting those those numbers rights too. Okay, so a little bit of deduction, a little bit of uh, kind of hidden hidden stuff going on. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, so why should designers play Decrypto? Well, designers should play Decrypto one because they're they're also people and they should play good games, and Decrypto is one of those. Uh, but also, I think more importantly, it's kind of a case study in how to make a game that's a step away from your sort of gateway game that lets people take what they've learned and apply it a step further. I think if you have a group that has played Codenames, I think they can get to Crypto, but Decrypto has, has an extra layer to it, right? Uh, you're not just trying to give clues so that your team can get something. It's vitally important that your clues are not too good. And that could that could be a difficult concept, you know, in a pre-codenames world. I think it might be difficult to get a group of people to understand how this game plays if they're not, you know, normal game players, if they're your holiday extended family or whatever it is. But I have played this with groups that definitely don't normally play games, but they're like, oh, yeah, I know, I know how to give clues like this. And it's different. It makes them think in, you know, more advanced ways. But in terms of understanding oh, I need to give word clues uh, in this sort of context, it, it builds upon that. And I think designers can can look at something like this. Uh, there are definitely games that try to step you up from you know, Ticket to Ride or step you up from Catan. Stepping up from party games to something that is you know, a little more advanced but actually still a party game, I think there's less of that in the market. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a good... You know, it's a good case study for the the kind of things you can do to to build upon previous work. Okay, how to how to step away from the this real simple party game where it's just it's cards and clues or cards and the uh, apples to apples kind of card game. Step away a little more complexity in the mechanisms than that. Right, but using the knowledge that people have from knowing how to play that. Right. Like there's so much about the, you know, the hobby board game space that builds upon, oh, everyone knows how to play Magic the Gathering. So when you, you know, tap a card, you know how that works. You know, you draw cards uh, definitely in like the deck building space, you know, everything built upon. Well, here's how Dominion works. So I guess also this is how our game works uh, and builds upon that to have new ideas. Seeing that in the party space is a little a little less common because people want you to be able to to pick it up immediately. But with something that's as big of a hit as Codenames, you can sort of count on people knowing how that sort of thing works, which is cool. All right, so you definitely don't think this would have been as popular or successful had Codenames not come first in the party. I area. really don't think so. You know, it's it's built with like a very similar box. It's it's got this. This accessibility, these cards. I mean, yes, it does do the uh, the red and blue text that you put behind a, a red sheet of plastic that I haven't seen since you know I played Outburst when I was eight. Oh yeah, but it but it's cool. It's a throwback in a way that kind of works for the vaguely Cold War themed aesthetic, where you know you are trying to to say code words so that people can't pick up. But yeah, no, I, I think. I think it has to to stand upon the shoulders of what came before it. Anything else you want to say about Decrypto? It creates such memorable experiences. I, I've played Codenames and I love Codenames, but I think Decrypto, it, it has that that narrative of, oh, everybody remembers that moment that, that I think I think is pretty cool. And 
Yeah, no, that's 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 about it. I I, re- I really like this game. You should play it. All right. Well, designers, give it a shot. Any last words for 2018, Graham? Or going into 2019? Next next year has got to be better, right? Let's hope. Let's hope it's better. <laughs> thanks, James. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Graham. And next up, we have Julio Nazario. How you doing, Julio? Doing good, James. So what game from 2018 do you think designers should play? Well, my game is Chronicles of Crime. Chronicles of Crime is a game by Lucky Duck Games, designer David Sicarell, I think is how it's pronounced. And it's a cooperative crime investigation game. And, you know, there's a couple of those out there. First one that usually comes to mind is Sherlock Holmes Consulted Detective, right? Mm-hmm. I have Sherlock Holmes. The problem with that is that, you know, you, you have these pamphlets and, and uh, books and you have to go through pages and it's kind of, it has a little learning curve connecting who you want to ask and stuff like that. Well, in Chronicles of Crime, the cool thing about it is that it, it has cards for characters, cards for locations, and it has QR codes on each of these uh, components. Every component has a QR code. And and how you play the game is basically using an app. You use an app to connect different situations. For example, um, the game, going back to how easy it is to use, it has a tutorial uh, scenario that takes like 20 minutes and it shows you how to play the game. So the the barrier to entry is so much nicer than Sherlock Holmes. And and what you do is kind of you start off at a location, you scan the location. That means that you're at that location. It says, okay, there's this person here, and you search for a number, and you get the card for that person, and you put it at that person at the location. That person has a scan uh, QR code. You scan it, and it, that person talks to you. And then you can start asking that person about different things. You can ask that person about people, about locations, about items that you have gathered throughout a, a scenario. And it's as simple as scan the person and then scan another person and you're asking about that person. If you want to ask them about something else, you scan something else. It's very straightforward. The other cool thing is that it uses a VR component, virtual reality component. Like I said, you're using the phone to do all the scanning. But the phone also is useful for that VR component to uh, do crime investigation. When you're in a crime scene, you're looking for different items that may be an interest to the crime that happened and to your investigation in general. It's a it's a very interesting game. I, I really enjoy it playing it so far. Very nice. So have you played many other games that used apps? Because I know there were quite a few of them that came out a while back, and then it seems like they almost kind of faded. Yeah, well, uh, I would say one, uh, Fuse. I played Fuse uh, some time ago, and that one's kind of maybe just used as a timer kind of thing. But in this one, the app is is part of the game, is something that if you don't have it, you can't play the game. Now, what, I, what another thing that I like about it and why I think designers should consider it is because... The game is expandable in a lot of different ways. The game comes with five scenarios, and you're basically reusing the characters and the locations in different ways. For example, in a scenario one, you may have a victim that's character five, and it's a woman or something. And maybe in scenario five, uh, the person that was the victim is a, a suspect. So you're using the components in different ways on different scenarios. 
Okay, so you've got you've got components that are used in multiple scenarios, and then they can be completely different stories, even though they are the same characters. Exactly, and then as a designer, you can even if you have the game with you, you can even. I'm not really a story designer, so I I wouldn't do this. But if you have a you know a storytelling element, you can even take the cards and design your own scenario, and even maybe even pitch it to Lucky Duck Games, and and they may consider it because what they're doing for expansions on this game is basically you download a five dollar expansion on the app, and that's all you and that's all you get. It's straightforward, and you get a full hour to hour and twenty and thirty minute scenario for five dollars using all the components that you currently have. And under Kickstarter, I actually backed it for the full thing. I got two ex- physical expansions that actually give you more characters and locations, but with different art styles. So they have like a Welcome to Red View. It's kind of like a Stranger thing, uh, a Stranger Things kind of art style. And then they have like a noir 1940s kind of kind of art style as well, which opens itself to different scenarios as well. Okay, so it definitely sounds like the uh, the very expandable with with minimal physical expansion. Exactly, exactly. So, and and going out of it, you can des- think about the ways you can design other games that use the same system. Not just storytelling games. Um, for example, w- one of my games, Dice Dice Revolution, I, I use cards with QR codes for- to scan the songs, and and you can use it that way as well. You know, you you just have the cards with the QR codes, and you combine them in different ways to get different results. Very cool. Uh, any other reasons you want to talk about real quick? Why designers should play Chronicles of Crime? Well, it it is a fun game. The virtual reality element, it's unique. Uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome. You know, people, when you want to play a board game, you want to be disconnected. But in this one, it's just like a maybe a scenario has three VR components and each one is like 60 seconds. And and it's it's cool. It's cool to watch as well. You know, you're looking through a room, looking at your phone and, and basically rotating your head and looking around the room. That's pretty unique as well. And again, the barrier to entry. It's easy to learn, it's fun to play, and it's just, uh, especially my wife, you know, she doesn't play games that are on the complicated side, and this one she really enjoyed it. That's why I recommend it if you're into uh, these crime investigation games that are a little weighty, but going through rule to through books is kind of a downer for you, kind of weighs down the experience. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Julio. Thank you, James. So next up, we have Matt Haberfeld. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. How are you today? I am excellent. So what game are you here to talk about for 2018 that you think designers should play? I think designers should play The Mind. And I know that is a controversial subject. People have gone back and forth on whether The Mind is a game or an activity, uh, whether it is good or terrible. And so I'll tell my experience with The Mind, uh, and, and maybe that will encourage designers to try it well for anybody who's been living under a rock why don't you explain it in 60 seconds sure absolutely um so the mind is a game with cards numbered from one to 100 and the goal of the game is for the players to play the cards as a team from the lowest number to the highest number but there is no talking and no communication or hand signals of any kind 
Okay. So the first time I played it was in um, Atlanta. We were at Proto Atlanta, and Ian and Nolan from Deepwater Games had a copy. And I'd kind of heard some of the controversy on Board Game Geek and Reddit about, you know, is this a game? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it terrible? Um, and they were very excited to play it. And so I was like, sure, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll play. And to be honest, my first experience was with the game was not amazing. You know, I, I it was novel and, and it was very simple. And, you know, it's great when you can make a game that is incredibly simple. Um, that's always a, a, an interesting design challenge. But I wasn't really into it that much. And the 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 hotness moved on over the summertime and it wasn't until Essen that I picked up a copy in Germany so you know it was it was incredibly cheap and uh Mark McGee another one of the the members of the game designers of North Carolina had not had a chance to play it so I brought it home but before I went home I spent another week for work in Germany and it was an IT like conference and so everybody that I was there with were all in IT, either infrastructure or business applications, you know, but we're all just generally technical, maybe a little nerdy, and, and we like to, to do that kind of stuff. So I brought the game out and played with people who are not really board gamers at all, and they loved it. They could not get enough of it, and that was what really surprised me. And I've probably played it 250 or 300 times now all with non-gamers, and everyone loves it. So the reason I think that designers should play the mind is to see the reactions of non-gamers and how they take to it and, and how they really approach the game and, and understand the game uh, from a, uh, just a non-gaming standpoint. Because as designers, we dissect the game instantly, and the mind doesn't have a lot to dissect. It's incredibly simple. You can explain it in 60 seconds. And I think it's very interesting to understand how to design a game that has mass appeal outside of a very traditional board game group. A lot of the time we design for ourselves or we design based on what is the, the newest, most interesting design mechanic and we may forget to take a step back and try to step into the shoes of someone who's not really a board gamer. And, and I think that's why the mind is, is very interesting to me as a game and something that everyone should play. But with the caveat that I don't think you should play with other designers. I think you should take it home to your family who doesn't play anything at all or, or play with uh, complete strangers and, and kind of see their reactions. Okay, so you're not actually looking at any of the mechanisms in, in the mind. You're looking at the complete social dynamic of the table and how they react to things like that. Yes, um, and I, I'm I'm very interested in the the like the mind does a very good job of building tension and releasing that tension with the play of cards, and and it's definitely more than the sum of its parts. You know, there are moments where you know you have a card and you know in your mind that the other person should play their card because it's lower, and they know in their mind that you should play your card because it's lower, and you get to this stalemate. And, and you're just looking at each other across the table. And the longer you wait, the more the tension builds. 
um, that eventually someone has to play a card. And then all that tension is released either with, uh, you know, a sigh of relief or, or a groan. And then everyone is like, oh, I can't believe you played that card. And uh, so that's a very interesting dynamic that comes out of a game that's so simple. It's just 100 cards and no talking, right? Like those are basically the rules. But a, a, a lot of interesting things happen in that space. Uh, anything else you want to say about the mind? Uh, I'm looking forward it to it coming to the U.S. I just got an email, I think today, that that more copies are uh, are available because they've been sold out through various venues. You almost have to buy it on eBay sometimes, but I think it will be widely available in 2019 for everyone who hasn't gotten a copy. I am sure, and Pandasaurus is bringing it over, right? Yes, I believe so. All right, thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. And with me now is Matt Wolf. How you doing, Matt? Very well. Thanks for having me on this prestigious podcast. No problem. So uh, what are you, game are you talking about for 2018? Uh, so the game that I think designers should play is Architects of the West Kingdom. Uh, this is by Shem Phillips and S.J. McDonald, put out by Garp Hill Games. They are probably most well-known for... Um, Raiders of the North Sea, and that was part of the North Sea uh, trilogy and that uh, I think it was Renegade uh, picked up and and put out, and that, that's done very well for them. So Architects of the West Kingdom is the first game in a new trilogy that they're doing that uh, Renegade is also uh, putting out. Uh, it's from at the time of this recording, it's actually fairly new, so there's a good chance a lot of listeners haven't had a chance to play it yet, uh, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, to cover this one. All right, so tell us a little bit about the game, how it works. So it's a work placement game, and basically what you're doing in the game, you're working as a shocker architects, uh, given you know the title of the game here, and you're just trying to build buildings uh, and just basically trying to impress the king as much as you can. Like, you know, it's a Euro, so the theme is not particularly strong in this game. But what is strong, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it, was the worker placement kind of system that's in this game. So in a lot of worker placement games... You, have, you know, the game is played in rounds and, you know, at the end of the round, which is almost always when everyone has placed all their workers, you take your workers back and, you know, and you usually do some prep for the next round. In this game, there are no rounds. It's not the first worker placement game to not have rounds. Uh, the first one that I'm aware of was the Manhattan Project, uh, where the one, it was very uh, free flowing and, if you didn't want to place workers, then you would take all your workers back from the board, and that was your turn for that time. Uh, so Architects for the West Kingdom is a little similar in the sense that there are no rounds. However, they avoid that dead turn that you can have in a Manhattan Project, which is something that uh, some players really didn't like. Uh, they, they didn't like you know just taking their workers back, and that was their turn. It, I, I personally didn't have a problem with that, but I can see you know, the validity of, of that feeling. So the way that Architects of the West Kingdom works is uh, one of the placement spots on the board that you can go to is a spot where you get to basically capture other players' workers from the board. And when you do that, they go on to uh, a spot on your player board that in the future you can then send them off to jail, basically. 
uh, in the game. Okay. Uh, other players have ways to, you know, get their workers off of other players' player boards and avoid having them sent to jail. But you may not care, uh, depending on you know how how the uh, the game is going. It might be okay if some of your workers get uh, get sent to jail temporarily. There's ways to get them out of jail and and things like that. So. I, I thought that was just a really elegant way of kind of solving that problem for a worker placement game of, you know, how do you get workers back? And, uh, you know, without having just a kind of a standard round based uh, game. And I, this is something that I've struggled with myself a little bit in some of my designs and with, uh, you know, trying to at least, if not eliminate rounds altogether, trying to reduce like the, the, you know, cleanup phase or the setup phase that you have to do, you know, each round uh, to continue the game. Uh, so, yeah, Architects of the West Kingdom does a great job of just making the gameplay very smooth and continuous and feels very organic in the way that your, basically your worker pool will kind of ebb and flow uh, as the game goes on. I admit I'm not entirely sure from your description how you get your workers back from jail or is that another action that you take with a worker? Yeah, it's just it's another action. So it, it's another worker placement spot on the board. And one of the other neat things about this game is when you place a worker in a worker placement spot, the number of workers that you have at that spot is the number of times you get to do that action. So if you already have workers at that spot from a previous turn and you put another worker there, you're going to get either more resources from that space or you'll get to do a higher level action or Maybe uh, some of the spaces have multiple actions you can do, so you might be able to do uh, multiple different actions at that spot, things like that. So jail is just another worker placement spot where you, you'll place a worker there, and then you have to pay a certain amount of uh, money in order to get them out. I forget exactly what it is. I think it's like five coins or something like that, uh, and then you get all your, your workers out. And it's, uh, yeah, so, so basically all the interactions in the game that are all worker placement spots and just they do different types of actions like that. Yeah, certainly seems like a, uh, a nice twist on the go to a space, collect resources or go to a space and build a building kind of worker placement situation. Right. And because, you know, the more workers you have there, the, the more powerful your action is, the other players in the game naturally are going to police that. They're going to say, well, man, you have three workers at, you know, like the, the forest. And so if you go there again, you're going to get four pieces of wood. There's no way I can let you do that. So I'm going to go to the spot where I get to round up, you know, someone's workers from one space and put them in, like, is it, I guess it's like a paddy wagon or something like it's, you know, they're on the way to go to jail. They're just not there yet. Hmm. And then, and, and that's, you know, a, a very uh, integrated feel within the game where it's just sort of naturally balancing in that manner where, you know, you, you will look to see, you know, is, is someone getting a little too powerful in one of these spots? You know, do, do I need to be the player that's going to, you know, uh, you know basically police that spot? Do I think someone else is going to, He's going to do it and, you know, I can do something else. Do I need to be wary of putting too many workers in a spot because then I might be the target to have my worker rounded up and taken to jail? And so you have all those types of really interesting uh, interactions in, in this game. And, yeah, it's definitely worth playing. I, I will say there's probably a certain player type that won't enjoy this because they'll feel like maybe they're being targeted by, you know, having their workers rounded up and taken to, uh, to jail. 
Uh, but I, I think at least I, I've only played it with five players. It, it goes up to five players. Uh, I don't know how it would do with lower player accounts, but at least with five players that never felt like anyone was getting targeted. It just, there just a, a, was a really nice, just ebb and flow to how you had to, you know, to manage your workforce and, and interact with the other players. All right. Definitely sounds like a, a something, something new to the genre. Anything? I think so. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to say before we head out? Uh, just, that I hope that all designers out there get all their uh, wishes fulfilled in uh, 2019. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. There you have it. Six games to try out in 2019 if you haven't already done so. Some news before we wrap up this episode. First, Anthelion Conclave of Power will be on Kickstarter January 2nd, 2019. It's a button-shy wallet game from group member Daniel Solis, where you are pulling and pushing characters to gather influence and form a powerful conclave to gain control of the universe. Second, we're working on some changes to the episode format for episode 50 and beyond. It seemed like a good point to make the changes with a round number and the end of the year lining up. The hope is to be able to release episodes on a more regular schedule and keep releases coming, even as my wife and I get closer to having our first child this summer. If there's anything you'd like to hear in recurring shorter segments as part of the new format, head on over to podcast.gdevnc.com, the easiest way to get to our BGG guild, and let us know. We'd also love to hear your opinions on the six games discussed in this episode and what game from 2018 you'd pick to have designers play. Check the show notes for the Twitter handles of all the designers featured in this episode, and as always, the group Twitter account is at gdevnc which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. That'll do it for this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Good night, and have a happy new year.